Good morning. Permission to speak. Good morning. How are we doing? Um, if you are a guest or visitor, if you haven't been with us for a while, we are thrilled that you're here. You're so welcome with us this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Andy. I'm part of the team here. And wave at me if you uh, connected with the tribe this week. Just Right, brilliant. You guys need to do better than that, right? So, so let me say this this way. If this is the only environment in which you engage with the Lagan Valley Vineyard, what we're trying to do will make no sense to you. Okay? It might tick some religious boxes for you. It might make you feel a little bit better. You can tell some of your weird friends that you go to church. But uh, in terms of trying to follow Jesus, if this is the space that that is confined to, it's just you're going to be pushing water up a hill with a brush. Um, so if you're serious about trying to figure out faith and what God is doing in your life and how to join in with him in the city and the world, then can I really encourage you, sign up to a tribe, find one on an evening or a morning that suits you or somewhere close to you. Uh, Sign-ups are still live. You can go on the laganvalleyvineyard.com uh, under the tribe section of our website, see all the lovely people that are leading tribes and sign up. That's still happening. Uh, let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you are in a romantic relationship? This is brilliant. I love this. Like some people are like, well, I'm in a relationship. It used to be romantic, but so I know all the married people are looking at each other going, is it? I'm not sure. I'm in church. Should I lie or not? Um, um, so let's play a little game, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go by years, right? So uh, if you've been in a romantic relationship, let's just say the romantic, okay? Let's just lie, right? Okay? Um, so let's just pretend that the romantic. Uh, so if you've been in a romantic relationship for more than five years, wave at me. More than ten years. Keep your hand up. <laughs> John Hoss at the back going, oh, no, not five, no. Ten, yep. Yep. <laughs> I appreciate it's very confusing, right? So 10 years, uh, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, wow, 30, 30 years, this is amazing, 35 years, look at Nick over here, look at these guys, well, let's keep going, 40, we, we, is there anybody, we've got me 40? 40, Heather? Anybody, anybody else? 40? 45? How many? How many years? 40 exactly? 41? 40 coming? Oh, that's so confusing. So 39? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry, that was a bit mean, wasn't it? Um, we had some people in the 945 service who have been in a relationship for 46 years. Isn't that amazing? Uh, so I know. So let's let's do this, right? There, this is like crazy wedding season for us as a as a church community. It's mad, right? Um, so if you're just married or about to be married, you want to look around the room in just a second, okay? So wave at me if you've been in a romantic relationship for ten years or more. Ten years or more, right? If you're about to be married, these are the people that you want to talk to, right? Go find them, ask them how they've done it what it's looked like. I have the really unfortunate job of telling people that are about to be married that uh, it's not all fun. And, uh, and it's worth it, but it is, it is hard. Um, I wonder how many of you remember the beginning of your relationship? The very first kind of moment. Um, some of you are like, that was longer. <laughs> I know, yeah, that sounds ominous. 
Um, I remember the beginning of, Dana and I are married 10 years in November. Yeah. So, so nine years. Nine years. <laughs> it's great having you home, babe. Nine years, coming ten. Um, I'm about to tell a really nice story about you, but now I feel like I should just delete it and move on. So I remember the beginning of our relationship, right? So we used to live in Los Angeles, and I drove this thing called a Honda Passport, right? Which was the biggest heap of junk. And like, it, I literally, this is a true story, I used to have to carry the shaft of a hammer in the driver's door because before I started the car, I had to pop the bonnet and tap the starter motor with the shaft of the hammer just to get the thing to start. But we were refurbing the office, the place that we worked, and somebody said to me, hey, Anna, you've got like a big car, don't you? And I was like, yeah, it's big. And well, I need you to take Dana to Ikea because we need to buy lots of furniture, flat pack furniture for this car or for the office, and we'll fit lots of it in your car. I was like, okay, no problem. So Dan and I are driving to Ikea. We went to Ikea, and uh, do you know what's just amazing? I flipping hate Ikea. Like, like, you couldn't pay me to go to Ikea with Dana these days. But that day, I was very excited about actually going to Ikea with Dana, how things have changed. Um, but on the way home, right, on the way home, we're driving down the freeway back to the other side of L.A., and I had a moment where I realized that I was in love with Dana. And it, compl- like, it was like one of those moments where like, we'd been friends for a while and all that sort of stuff. We'd done that key thing. We're driving home. The Southern Californian sun was coming through the windscreen. We were talking about something that was really interesting. And I had that kind of moment, maybe some of you experienced this, where you're like equal parts terrified and excited. You know, where it's like, oh no, my mom was right. I am in love with this girl. And that was the beginning of our dating relationship that became the beginning of our engagement, that became the beginning of our marriage that is nearly 10 years in, in November, but beginnings are, beginnings are really powerful, aren't they? And lots of us remember the beginnings of the significant uh, relationships and things in our lives, but you know, beginnings can be equally, they can be equally painful. Many of you that know me well will know that when I want to relax, usually I uh, go and climb a mountain somewhere, and uh, I was in Scotland uh, this winter and uh, with a friend, and we were going to go and climb this route that neither of us had ever done before, and uh, it was kind of in this remote part of the highlands, and we drove to, to the beginning of it, and the kind of plan was to hike through this forest for about an hour to get to the bottom of this big ridge, and then we're going to climb the ridge. And um, we'd been walking for about 45 minutes and deep snow, snow kind of up to our knees and, and deeper, and I had this kind of sinking feeling that something wasn't quite right. Like things weren't kind of appearing the way I thought they should. And uh, after another kind of 15 or 20 minutes, I said to my mate that I was with, I said, Sam, we need to stop. And we came to this kind of path junction. I got my map out and I'm, I'm looking at where I think we should be. And I'm looking at everything around me. And I said, Sam, this, this isn't right. We, we aren't where we think we should be. And uh, we, we figured out that actually uh, we had started in the wrong place. That where we thought the beginning, where we thought we were, wasn't where we actually were. And we'd set off in the wrong direction. And the fruit of that decision was, and this is not an exaggeration, three and a half hours of wading through snow that eventually came up to our waist. And the heading off in the wrong direction had huge, huge consequences for us. You see, beginnings are really, really critical. Where we start on certain journeys really, 
really matter. And starting in the right place can actually save us lots of pain further down the road. The text that Jess read in worship this morning is a really key beginning text for our family here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. When we began this um, church, that text from Isaiah 61 was really critical, really crucial to what we felt like God was speaking to us as the start, the beginning of our journey together. Not only that, it was the text that Jesus actually chose to read at the beginning of his public ministry here on earth. I wonder whenever you think about the beginning of your relationship with God, what do you think about? Where does your mind go whenever you think about where potentially your faith journey began? Maybe you find yourself here this morning and you're like, Andy, this is it. Like I've been around some people who've been telling me about Jesus and they've dragged me along here this morning and this, this literally is the beginning. I love that every weekend we gather there are people in that category in this room. But for some of you, maybe your beginning is hard to kind of pinpoint. Maybe you grew up with parents who loved Jesus and for as long as you can remember talking to God, having a relationship with Jesus, trying to follow him and live out what he's doing in the world, it's just kind of been totally normal for you. You can't really think of a beginning. It's just always, he's always just kind of been there. Maybe for some of you, like you can pinpoint almost the exact minute. You have a date, day, month, year where you collided into Jesus or um, maybe more accurately, he bumped into you. Our beginnings are powerful. Maybe for some of you, actually, the beginning of your faith journey is the source of some pain. Maybe for the last wee while, you've been actually trying to unravel some of your beginning, some of what was maybe presented or projected to you as who God is and what he is like. Your beginning will speak to how you answer that question. What is God like? It's one of the most important questions we can ever ponder or reflect upon. Affects our frame, affects everything else. What is God like? I wonder how you would answer that question this morning. What is God like? I want you to hold that in your mind, that question. Maybe suspend your own experience, good and bad. Just hold that question in your mind as I read this text again this morning. The question, what is God like? Isaiah 61 verse 1 says this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, that they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, we welcome you this morning. Come. We invite you to speak to us, reveal Jesus to us. In his name we pray. Amen. I wonder if, what your life would look like if that were true. Like if God was really like that, how would it change things for you? What if God was actually full of love and compassion and mercy and justice and courage and selflessness and comfort and power and life? What if God was really like that? Listen to the words of George MacDonald, 19th century Scottish theologian and philosopher. He's writing hugely influenced uh, C.S. Lewis and all that kind of he would write and say. This is George MacDonald. He says, how terribly then have the theologians misrepresented God in the measures of the low and showy, not the lofty and simple humanities. Nearly all of them represent him as a great king on a grand throne, thinking how grand he is, making it the business of his being and the end of his universe to keep up his glory, wielding the bolts of a Jupiter against them that take his name in vain. They would not allow this, but follow out what they say, and it comes much to this. Brothers, have you found our king? There he is, kissing little children and saying they are like God. There he is, at a table with the head of a fisherman lying on his bosom and somewhat heavy of heart that even he, the beloved disciple, cannot understand him well. What George MacDonald is saying is so often... The picture that's presented to us of the character, nature, and person of God is irreconcilable to the person of Jesus revealed to us in the scriptures. So often we get presented with this picture of God as some kind of cosmic narcissist who is seeking wherever he can find worship for himself, constantly insecure, needing bigger churches and more followers to put his insecurities to rest. And yet we read in the Gospels of this humble servant surrounding himself constantly with the lowest and the least, with people of disreputable character and places that you would rather not find your kids were in. So often we find Jesus with the muck and the mess of the broken and the poor. And the religious elite denying that he could ever find himself synonymous with holiness because he surrounds himself with brokenness. And how wrong we are. Here in Isaiah, we find a revelation of and nature of God. Could it be that the God of the universe, that his head and his heart is occupied by the concerns of the poor? Isaiah in this powerful passage, it kind of allows us to 
peek behind the curtains of God's heart to see what really dwells there. And what we find is more than any of us would dare dream. He cares. He cares. Some of you have grown up with a picture of God like a kind of cosmic headmaster who's pretty angry. And his business is to kind of just wait and watch until you find yourself doing something that you shouldn't be doing and you get some sort of eternal detention as punishment. It's not the picture that we read about here. The preaching of good news to the poor. The binding up of broken hearts. The proclamation of freedom for captives. Release from darkness for prisoners. What if that really was the stuff that occupied God's head and heart? What if that was what he was really like? The beginning of our journey with Jesus is how we answer that question. What do you think God is like? Second really important question, what do you think God is doing? What do you think God is doing? I wonder how many of you, I kind of grew up a wee bit with this, of like, um, to be honest, I wasn't much interested in church or following Jesus because I kind of figured that the whole heaven when you die thing was a bit boring. Like an eternal church service. (laughs) I mean, as good as they are, like I'd probably rather go climb a mountain. I wonder how you answer that question. What is God doing? What is God like? And what is he doing? Sitting in his office, rather annoyed at the world, waiting for his reports from the angelic of all of you messed up this week. What do you think he's doing? Listen again to the text with that question. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. What if that's what he was doing? What if that's what he was doing? Forget the culture wars of left and right. Forget project fear. God is not angry. This is the year of his favor, his love, his life, and his goodness. There is comfort available to all of those who mourn. There is provision for those who are grieving. There is an offer and an invitation to discover beauty instead of ashes, joy instead of mourning, and praise instead of despair. I wonder, do any of these things sound familiar to you? I wonder somewhere in your mind, are you thinking, I I feel like I've maybe heard this before somewhere else. Just two weeks ago, I was preaching from Revelation chapter 21, 
where John says, the future, in the future that's coming, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. You see, this picture we get from Isaiah in chapter 61 is not just kind of a moment. The story of God revealed in the scriptures, his character, his nature is revealed as this to us from the very beginning to the very end. That he is one concerned about humanity. He is one who passionately and affectionately pursues us into our mess. That whenever we find ourselves lost and broken, he would presence himself among us and saying, let's walk this way. You see, the restoration or renewal of humanity to life in a culture of hope immersed in the presence of God has always been our destiny and it's available to us now. Let me say that again. The restoration or renewal of humanity to a life in a culture of hope immersed in the presence of God has always been our destiny and it is available to us now. It's available now. And my favorite part of this text is the very end of chapter 3 where Isaiah prophesies that they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. It begs the question, doesn't it? Who's the they? Who are you talking about, Isaiah? Who is this they that will be called oaks of righteousness? Of course, it's the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the prisoner, those who mourn, those who are in despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. I wonder how does that make you feel? There is a beginning in uh, Northern Irish Christianity that some would refer to as worm theology. Some of you may be familiar with this idea, and it goes something like this, that I am a dirty, rotten sinner. And the best I could ever hope for is through some sort of prayer and sort of spiritual gymnastics to live the kind of life that would qualify me maybe possibly to get some scraps from God's table in the hope that when I die, some lovely person would let me sneak in the back door to heaven. And you don't find it anywhere in the Bible. It's a perversion of the gospel. You see, any gospel that is not rooted in the character and nature of God, which is radical, extravagant, compassionate love for his creation, is a perversion. You see, God's desire, and this blows the Northern Irish religious mind into many pieces, God's desire, according to Isaiah, is that he would display his splendor upon you. I wonder how does that make you feel? That you wouldn't be some poor sinner stuck under a table hoping for some crumbs, but actually you would become one in whom God would delight to display his splendor upon. Let me paraphrase that for you for some of you are like, okay, Andy, what does that look like? God's desire is to show off his goodness in your life. 
please don't confuse that with God wants your life to be comfortable. What if it was possible that in the midst of the most challenging life circumstances, you could learn to live in an atmosphere of hope and joy? What if that were possible? God's desire is to display his splendor upon you. And through you, demonstrate it to the world. That's the beginning. That is where we start. That God is love. And he is demonstrating that love to the world. What is God like? In short, better than you could ever imagine. In short, he's better than you could ever imagine. Imagine, what is he doing? He's pursuing the least and the lowest and he's using them to display his goodness to the world around them. That's the kind of God I want to worship. How about you? In the brief time we have left, I just want to set Stu up uh, for, for next week. When Jesus wanted to frame his ministry... When he kind of emerged into the public realm and he wanted to kind of declare to the world that it had begun. These are the words that he chose to say. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This is the frame that Jesus uses to begin his ministry. This is Jesus' paraphrase of the mission of God on earth, good news to the poor. The brokenhearted bound up. Freedom for captives and release from darkness for, for prisoners to proclaim the year of God's favor. Acts 1 verse 1, uh, Luke who, who wrote that says this really interesting thing. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, that's who's writing Acts 2. It's kind of mad when you think about that, right? That we think it's just the Bible, but actually it began with like a guy writing to a guy, Right? In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about everything he's referencing, the gospel of Luke, right? Just a bit of Bible trivia for you a second. So he writes, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what he says at the start of the book of Acts. Now, you don't need to be a literary genius to figure out the inference of that is, in this book, I'm writing about everything that Jesus continued to do and teach, right? Right? So Acts is an account of what Jesus continued to do and teach after the gospel account. Except Jesus leaves the book of Acts, I think it's verse 7 or verse 8 of chapter 1. What's going on? Well, if you read Acts, I really encourage you to do this. Start in Matthew, just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Right? What's really interesting is what's kind of going on in Acts sounds just like what was going on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It just feels like a continuation of it. Because that's exactly the point. That after Jesus' ascension, those that followed him continued his ministry on earth. 
That is the best understanding of what the church is supposed to be you will ever get. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul tells the church, now you are the body of Christ, each one of you is part of it. That the church is supposed to embody the ministry of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we just gather around each other and come to church and give each other hugs and take care of each other. Of course we have to learn to be family. But read the Gospels. Jesus didn't just go and find a bunch of people and say, hey lads, come follow me and go and sit in a worship service and say, are you doing all right? You doing all right? You doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Are you doing all right? Yeah, okay this week. Yeah, how are you doing this week? Yeah, we're okay. Of course that's not what happened. Now, don't get me wrong, that's important. But they traveled all around proclaiming and demonstrating the goodness of God. And it continues through Acts and it's supposed to continue right up to today. That we are supposed to be the answer to the question, what is God like and what is he doing? We're supposed to be able to say, confession, this scares the life out of me, but it's true. When our culture, when our world asks the question, what is God like and what's he doing? We're supposed to be able to say, check out the church and you'll find out. And we get that badly wrong all the time. But the commission remains the same. That our job is to put flesh, blood and bone onto the present day ministry of Jesus. Proclaiming and demonstrating to the world around us what God is like. I wonder how you answer those questions. What is God like? What is he doing? What if we became the kind of community that embodied this picture from Isaiah 61? The proclamation of good news to the poor, the binding up of the brokenhearted, freedom for captives, release from darkness, for prisoners, to herald to the world that God's not angry. It's the year of his favor to comfort those who mourn, providing for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, that those who need it most would become oaks of righteousness planted to display God's splendor. I want to invite James and the band back up. Um, I'm going to invite them to lead us as we um, listen to the, to the Holy Spirit and respond. And if you're able, will you stand? I'm going to pray and then the band will lead us for a minute. Just as we do this, I want to really encourage you to kind of create a moment for yourself to hear something from the Lord. So don't just jump into singing the words that'll appear. Discipline yourself not to think about how long the roast has been in the oven or what the kid's behavior is going to be like on the way home. 
or that stuff you've got to do this week, I want you to create a moment, still your mind and your heart. I encourage you to close your eyes as I pray and the band lead us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're among us and that you're here. We welcome your wildness and your gentleness. Come, we pray. Amen.
ourselves maybe somewhere similar to me on that mountain last winter. Just a, an awareness, maybe it's been growing, maybe you've been living with it for ages, that you're, you're going the wrong way, that you're headed in the wrong direction and you, you need to turn around. You know, there's a word that's quite loaded here, it's called repentance. And actually, it's a brilliant word. The word repentance is the most beautiful word. It means to turn around, to change our minds. And I have a really strong sense this morning that there are many of us in the room that this is a moment of repentance where, where we acknowledge before God that, yeah, I've been, I've been heading the wrong way. Maybe that's a really active thing. Maybe that's just been in your thoughts. Maybe that's whatever that looks like for you. But I want to just create a moment for us to, to do that together, to, to, to turn around. And so I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up and come to the front. I just want to invite you all to close your eyes for a second. And if, if you know this morning that the, the way your life is headed is just, it's, it's not right. And suspend the, what it would mean, you know, suspend how that would kind of look. Just You just know that the direction you're headed isn't right. I want to invite you just to place your hand on your heart. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Just place your hand on your heart. The beginning of salvation is a confession of the goodness of God. So I want you to pray this prayer. Father, I acknowledge that you're good. this morning I've been headed the wrong way and I turn to you right now I surrender my life to you immerse me in your grace your love and your forgiveness like there was another group of people here this morning and you're kind of in that like um, God would never do anything with someone like me that like you're, you actually find it easy to believe that God would do wonderful things with people that get on the stage or some of those really good holy people that you know but you know you're supposed to just kind of keep it together and, and scrape by and I want to say this gently this morning you need to repent too because those thoughts are not God's thoughts. He says that He wants to display His splendor upon you. I, I love that the flow of that text in Isaiah is, 
It's the poor, the broken, the mourning, those in despair. It is those, it is upon those that God will display his splendor. And so if, if you find yourself in that narrative of God does great things with other people, but would never want to do that with me. Again, I want to encourage you to close your eyes and place your hand on your heart. And I want you to pray this prayer. God, I repent of thinking things about myself that are not in your mind. God, I repent of thinking things about myself that are not in your mind. And I invite you by your Holy Spirit to come and display your splendor upon me. Come and display your splendor upon me. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray.